0: Grow your business in Slack. Visit Slack.com to get started.
1: We are consistently trying to be grounded in what it actually takes to solve the issue of climate change. Not what feels politically possible in this moment, but what it actually takes.
2: Hello, welcome to The Clown Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Um, I love this episode. I'm really excited about it. I think you're going to you're gonna like it too. But before we get into it in a related sense, I asked a couple of days ago on the podcast about climate change guests you would like to see because I'm going to be doing a series on that. Uh, this episode itself is not technically part of that series, so it's obviously very related. Um, and what I asked for then was sort of guess who represented an unusual angle on the debate. I got lots of great, great, great suggestions, and I, I'm, I'm going to use some of them. Um, but I realized, too, that I should probably ask the, the more obvious question and not assume I know the answer to it, which is, who is the one voice you really do want to hear from in climate change? Um, doesn't matter if they're the most famous voice in the game. Like, who who is interesting to you there? So if you want to email me at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com with, like, the one person who you would like to hear interviewed on climate change above all others, uh, I would be grateful for it. Again, that is Kleinshow at Vox.com. But related to that, my guest today is Varshini Prakash, and she's the executive director and a co-founder of the Sunrise Movement, which is the youth-led climate justice movement that has genuinely transformed the conversation in this space. Going back to when they did a sit-in in Nancy Pelosi's office, which led to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez coming and supporting them, led to, to at least some movement in the House towards the Green New Deal, towards a Climate Select Committee. They've been a driving force behind the idea of a Green New Deal And there there is something in the the moral clarity and the approach and the kind of effort to manage both an inside and an outside game of of their work that has really been effective. I mean, it is rare for an organization to change as much, at least about the conversation, as they have as quickly as they have. And I think there's something also particularly important that this is a youth movement. Um, People who are young are going to deal with the effects of climate change for longer than people are older. And there's a there is both um, a lack of some of the internalized strictures of the system, some of the failures of the past, some of the, the beliefs about uh, the limits on what is possible, and an urgency about the size of the problem that I think you don't get unless you have people who are coming of age in this era, which is something that Prakash and I talk about. But she's a wonderful representative of this movement and also a wonderful insight into, into what it feels like to have come of age very cognizant of what's happening environmentally around us all, all at one moment. Um, and it's also nice to to talk a little bit about like the practice of political organizing, which is, as we discuss in here, is something that I think people sometimes don't realize how personally transformative and even pleasurable it is. If you look at politics and it all looks terrible and you follow it kind of hating it, um, one of the things that can be really nourishing, something that can change your views on it, is actually to be involved at your own level. Um, it doesn't if you haven't been, it doesn't feel the way sometimes people think it will feel. Um, being involved in politics is honestly a lot better for the soul than just following it, watching it. Uh, so there's something to that, too. Um, anyway, uh, as always, my email, ezraklancho at vox.com. Here is Varshini Prakash. Varshani Prakash, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey, Ezra. Thank you so much for having me here.
2: So let's start a bit with your path. How did you come to climate activism?
1: So... My arrival to this fight, I think, has always been personal. It's always been about my family and where I'm from. Um, so I'm the child of two South Indian immigrants. My family comes from—my uh, dad in particular grew up in this place called Chennai. And growing up, he would always be telling me stories about Chennai, right? He'd tell me about his dad coming home on the motorcycle one time with a little puppy tucked under his arm, like the, the images of my body, my grandmother, making home-cooked food food every day, and uh, I've been lucky to be able to go back a few times during when I was growing up, and every time I visit the beaches that he grew up on, I just have these like amazing images of all these skinny little Indian boys playing cricket on the sand, um, being chased by Goofy the dog. So it's it's always been a place that I had loved deeply, that I have uh, deep roots in as well. Um, And I wonder, do you remember the tsunami that struck in the Indian Ocean? I think it was back in 2004. I do. So this was a a huge moment in my young life. I remember just watching on CNN, just being transfixed, watching on my TV screen these 30-foot waves, two of them crashing again and again and again on the shores, like wiping away. It felt like just the entire shoreline and taking people and animals and debris and trees with it. And, you know, like I remember just hating politics at that time but, like, rushing home to watch the news – Watching the number on on the TV screen rise like fifty k, one hundred k, two hundred k, and more uh, and and just being like hunted every single night going to bed by the image of that. Um And so at this time, I think i was I was about eleven years old. I was in the sixth grade, and I was just desperate to do something, right? Anything to alleviate the pain. And I didn't really have much at my disposal besides, like, this Red Cross donation box that my class was gathering supplies in to donate. So I just, like, gathered every single thing that I could. I asked my mom. I asked my brother. And I remember taking all of these cans of food and dumping it in that box and, and looking at them there and thinking, dear God, this is not enough. Like, I cannot save anyone in this in, in this moment. And that sheer sense of powerlessness has always struck with me. And so as I got older, I think, like— just the next year, I watched that same image repeat with Hurricane Katrina, the, like, bodies floating on the water, that the, the ra- racism, 3,000 people dying. I got to middle school and high school and started learning about the climate crisis, like, water scarcity, food insecurity, people living in all of this smog and pollution. And I think I felt this, like, deep moral obligation, right? In some ways, you can't control an earthquake or a tsunami or prevent it from happening. But when I was learning about climate change and this, like, nauseating socioeconomic inequity in the world that led to all this pain and suffering, and that that suffering was literally caused by people living half a world away who made money off of the backs of those individuals, I figured, like, there's a lot of suffering that happens in the world you can't stop, but there's a lot that you can. And so I think I felt this, like, almost – spiritual calling to do everything in my power to build a more just and equitable society for as many people as possible.
2: Let me try to draw something out of that. And you can tell me if this resonates or it's just me projecting <laughs> too much onto, uh, onto you. But I'm always fascinated by, by people's formative moments in, in politics. Mm. So for me, um, it was 9-11. I was not interested really in politics before that. And then 9-11 happened. And it was this moment of realizing that whether or not I was interested in politics and world events, it was going to be interested in me. Um, totally. I didn't I didn't really get to choose. And something I've noticed talking to people in the climate crisis movement and in the environmental movement is the dividing line seems to me to be between people who think we control nature and people who either because of who they are or what they've seen and experienced recognize that nature controls us, that we're sort of here at its pleasure. And it, it sounds like that event did that in the way of it. It was a moment where you're realize that, yeah, it may it may all look solid around us, but nature is interested in us. And if it decides to get angry, there's not a whole lot for all the trappings of modernity we can do.
1: No, and that's exactly right. I mean, people are always talking, at least a little while ago, people were discussing stopping the climate crisis, like we need to save the planet. But I'm like, the planet is going to be here long, long, long after humanity is dead and gone. The people who are going to really suffer is, is going to be humans and like the millions of species that are around us. And I think there's been a certain sense that we are really at the mercy of nature and of these forces beyond us. And I think the more we try to control or act like we are above it, the more it's it's to our own peril.
2: I just love that point so much. Um, I, I think it's been a real – I don't want to call it a mistake exactly because it was done with the best of intentions – But the way Save the Planet became, it framed environmentalism as an act of altruism towards the Mm. planet, Mm -hmm. as opposed to an act of self-preservation for us, Mm -hmm. in retrospect, was a real error.
1: Absolutely. And I think, you know, especially when we think about the issue of climate change, it is so all-encompassing, right? It touches virtually every sector of society, every part of our life that is imaginable. It is just the the backdrop to all of it. And yet it feels like for the last 40 years, it's been kind of really uh, relegated to the realm of environmentalism. Like it's about like saving the environment or preserving the environment or something like that, but not in the process of, of salvation for like humankind more broadly and, and, and preserving our way of life really, um, or, or even improving it for generations to come.
2: I'm going to come back to sort of the path to to sunrise, and, and I want to talk a lot about the organizing theory of it. But I, but I do want to spend some time here because my sense is that there's a, a pretty different emotional relationship to what is happening in the planet among um, people who are you know young millennials and, and and even beyond than than people who are a bit older. There's a real there's this idea that I keep hearing about of climate grief, and I wanted mm. to, to see if you could try to. Uh, um, Explain that experience a bit that 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 sense of growing up and believing that this story may not turn out okay for us, which I don't think is a is really the experience of people who are boomers or gen Xers. I think there was a sense that it would all turn out all right. And when I talk to people on colleges and when I look at the environmental movement and and the people who are really active in it, that seems to be a, a real change
1: mm, yeah, I think for my generation growing up during this time. We just haven't lived in a period that wasn't tainted in some significant form by climate breakdown. You know, as I said, some of the most formative experiences in my life were Hurricane Katrina um, witnessing and then later on just witnessing – I remember just reading articles about like the state just north of where my dad grew up about how just in a week's time over 1,000 people just dropped dead because it was too hot outside. You know? And I think meeting these young folks who, many of whom, if they were born after the year 2000, have never experienced a year on this planet that wasn't one of the hottest years on record in human history. And then you have kids growing up who are just 11 and 12 years old watching Hurricane Maria, this – this uh, I appreciate how Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez called it – almost like a climate bomb that killed and, and took the lives of over 3,000 people. We're just gl- growing up as this, this climate generation. Um I remember being in college, actually, and and when I was first really digging into climate activism and and starting to get involved and thinking about the problem deeply for the first time, I feel like I spent (laughs) a lot of nights with my friends, like, in this ideation and imaginative process of of planning our bunkers for when climate disaster occurred, if we didn't do something drastically to limit uh, warming and like imagining these roving, you know, bands of, of armed militia because like our social and political institutions had just like broken down and needing to like fend for ourselves and grow food and, you know, just this like very dystopic image. And and that was like during one of the most formative moments in my life, like those were the images that were coming to mind. Um, I was just imagining this, this conversation or remembering this conversation that I had with this uh, 16-year-old who was a part of one of our training programs. And this like teenager was telling this unbelievable story um, Who's from Maryland, shared the story to training about like how so many young people her age are dealing with depression and suicide that is actually related to the climate crisis and like wondering if humans should even exist in the world. You know, like the, that is the level of depth to the thinking that kids are having to grow up around these days.
2: Yeah, I have to say, and, and, and we can come back to this too, but the the conversation that I hear about, well, maybe nobody should have children. Maybe it's not a moral thing anymore to have children because of this world they'll be growing up in. It breaks my heart in this very mm. deep way. That the, the sense of I'm—I think I'm pretty critical of humankind in a lot of ways. Uh, the way we treat um, ourselves and each other and animals, and so I'm—I'm I'm very sympathetic to the negative take on humans. But there's something about losing that faith in in the species you're part of that that is really profound. But you know, I, I came—I grew up in the '90s and. Everything seemed okay in the 90s. It, was, it wasn't it was all okay, but it seemed okay at the moment. And But I would hear about the Cold War generation and kids doing these nuclear bomb drills in the mornings in their classrooms. And I think about how much the fear of annihilation in the Cold War, right, the sense that something could really happen where everybody would die, how much it warped politics for generations, right, how much it created a sense of threat that really ran over a lot of our ability to have a conversation in this country um, and choose different paths forward. And, you know, then you had a generation or two that came out in the aftermath of what felt there like a real victory. And so, you know what? Actually, history turns out fine. America is a blessed nation. And now, you know, I I imagine it's not just climate, but Donald Trump gets elected, there are constant school shootings, you have the financial crisis. This sense of the story does not turn out okay. Um, I just... I wonder what it will look like to have a politics that is the the formative moments were um, such a dramatic and proper loss of faith in the the institutions that surround us all um, because they've failed quite, quite dramatically.
1: Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people are making choices in this moment about who they are, about what kind of country, what kind of people we really want to be. Uh, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who is an immigration justice leader who had a really terrible situation happen to her a few years ago where her uh, family member was deported. And she really recalls having this this critical juncture in her thinking and in her process of becoming a leader and a political leader in this country of saying, you know, this, this terrible thing happened to me and my family. What kind of person will I be in this moment? Will I be the kind of person that turns away and retreats and gets small and kind of hides into myself? Or is this the moment where I actually face these people who are oppressing me and and creating the conditions for a painful life and actually fight back? And I think young people in Parkland are making that choice. I think young people who have seen their homes burned to rubble in Paradise and Miguel, California, are making the choice to speak out. for me, a lot of the formative moments of my life are when I have witnessed and and come to a crossroads and made choices about, you know, the kind of person I want to be in in the midst of all of the potential death and destruction.
2: So let's talk about some of those choices. So this is the context in which you uh, come of age politically. What is what is your first um, experience with climate activism? Because it, the Sunrise founders came from different climate movements themselves. Um That's right. So so where did it where did it begin for you?
1: So, you know, I was in the midst of this, like I was 13, 14, 15, learning about all of these crises, getting really agitated about it. I think you can chalk up some of it to teenage angst. I think most of it was just that we were living in an unjust world. Um, but when I was in middle school and high schooler, I I just did what I knew how to do. I uh, terrorized my family and friends about recycling. I was one of those. I was like obsessively turning off the lights behind my mom every five seconds. I joined the recycling club, which I think was a ploy by my high school, so they didn't have to pay anyone to take out the recycling. Um,
2: Neoliberalism but, you know, <laughs> is everywhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, I know. So, you know, it was I did what I knew how to do. And I, I, I poured the idea of politics for a really long time in my life i i I was fairly apolitical even though I was so upset about these social and economic injustices um and I think it was honestly because growing up like this brown, skinny, short girl with curly hair who's kind of loud like I just i it really felt like. Politics and elections and the government and all of that whole culture was almost like reveled in my exclusion, you know? And that was the sense that I had during that time. And so it wasn't really till college till I kind of fell in love with and was introduced to social movements. Um I was taking classes in like environmental science. And one day when I was I think I was like 19 or something, I was asked by a friend to emcee a demonstration at at my alma mater, UMass Amherst, uh, that was against like bringing fossil fuel infrastructure to Western Massachusetts or something. Um, And I was like, yeah, I care about climate change. I'll do it. And I was super nervous. I had never spoken in front of people before. I was really young. I remember feeling just like nauseous and totally freaked out for days. And it was this cold day right in December during finals week. There was like a dinky, like there were 100 kids outside of the student union. My friend Katie handed me the megaphone and I walked out and I saw all of those people out there. It was like, my heart stopped pounding instantly. This like energy started flowing and I almost burst into tears because I think standing there holding that megaphone for the first time in my life, I finally felt like I wasn't, you know, just this small, alone person facing the climate crisis. I was actually like, I had people. We were able to rise up in unison, like ready to take on the powers that be to secure a better life for all of us. So in that moment, I think I was like, Totally hooked. I felt more powerful than I'd ever felt in my life. I started getting really active. I attended a demonstration in D.C. with like 40,000 people in the middle of winter uh, to protest the construction of the Keystone XL pipeline. I came back to my school and helped kickstart this fossil fuel divestment campaign, basically calling on the university to stop investing in oil, gas, coal corporations that were jeopardizing my generation's future. And I, I loved organizing because... I think it just went beyond the realm of, like, individual consumer choices, right? It was, like, beyond changing light bulbs. It was about changing politics, about challenging the status quo, about disrupting the power structures that have allowed for the fossil fuel industry to rake in tens of billions of dollars a year off the backs of people who are suffering. Um, So this this campaign was really my baby for a long time, and it was the the way that I entered the climate movement writ, writ large.
2: It also sounds, and I I mentioned it because I think it's something people don't talk about enough, it also sounds like organizing had a role in changing yourself.
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I will say, like, when I was in high school and stuff, I had low self-esteem. Like, I didn't believe that I was powerful or smart or worth investing in. And when I got to college, I think being a part of a, a campaign, like knowing that there were ultimately thousands of people like me out into the world just really created this transformation inside of me that I began feeling like I was more powerful than ever before. And I think like, you know, there was a time when I couldn't talk about the person who brought me into the movement without breaking down in tears, because at some level, I had just never had somebody invest in my development or care so much about strengthening my voice and my leadership. And I think, you know, all of the people who ha- I have met along the way in my organizing life have certainly made me the the, the leader that I am today.
2: I, I love the way you put that. And I don't know, I just want to draw this out for one minute because you made this nice point earlier where you said that it, it seemed like politics reveled in your exclusion. And I think for a lot of people who follow politics, you follow it because maybe you feel you need to, or you follow it because you're uh, obsessed with it. Whatever it might be, it's still ugly. You look at it and it is ugly. I mean, people—if you ask them, "Do you want to run for office?" I said, "No." Like they're like car salesmen, and and there's a funny thing. I think that's really counterproductive for the system in the sense that politics is ugly, but being involved in politics is actually often really beautiful. Um, the mm. communities you meet, what it what it does to you, the the sense of agency you get, and people don't talk about it very much. They talk about how terrible politics is, and so it's a very logical leap to well, being involved in politics would also be terrible because like look at these jerks. But there's a beauty to it that that doesn't get talked about, and that I think people very very reasonably they like infer backwards from what they see in politics to what it would feel like to be part of politics. But I, I mean, I spent a lot of time talking to people who are involved and particularly at the at like the citizen level and the community level it doesn't feel that way it's a it's a much more moving and and connecting and grounding experience than people often think it will be before they before they start
1: no, absolutely. I I have learned from so many people being involved in politics, like a, a level of, of compassion, a level of generosity, almost like a, a necessary joyfulness, you know, like the fact that we are just steeped in the depth of despairing, painful topics means that you actually just have to create your own joy around you. And I think it... You find the best of people in this work because you find people who have decided that every single day they are going to wake up and assert themselves to the mission at hand of creating a more just society. And, like, those are incredible people to be around. An actually really transformative moment for me was in college when I, I had a political science professor teach me about how politics cannot be reduced actually just to the realm of elections right of electoral politics and for so long when I thought of politics I thought uh, like Robert's rules uh, history books voting um, campaigning all of these things that uh, I don't know they feel kind of dirty and they feel they don't they don't feel uh, like vibrant in any kind of way or inclusive in any kind of way and I think like when I learned that Politics and 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 the process of building a social movement is actually about practicing democracy beyond and including, but also outside of the realm of 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 elections and political parties and 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 that kind of terrain. I think it made me under like it made me so much more excited to participate because it was sort of almost antithetical to the way that I had conceived of it growing up.
2: So uh, on the point of finding your people here. How did the Sunrise co-founders find each other?
1: Well, we all have different stories. Um, so we had all been organizing for a number of years prior to coming together. Um, I had been and then, uh, probably like three or four or five of the co-founders of Sunrise had been organizing on the campus fossil fuel divestment campaign, both at you know the collegiate level, but also nationally. Um, we had been all activated on climate largely in the Obama years, though some of us before that. Many of us had been young college students in the heyday of the Keystone XL fight, and and you kind of find each other in those moments, either at big marches or at youth convenings or, you know, we had also built up institutions like the Fossil Fuel Divestment Student Network where we saw and engaged and worked with one another. Um, Other folks were actually members uh, of our members were in Paris when the Paris Agreement was signed and was like doing international work. So we felt really like during that period you know we saw a lot that was one we saw this burgeoning grassroots movement this energy that hadn't existed prior to we saw this international global agreement being signed like these executive actions the establishment of the clean power plan and then at the same time we were also seeing these IPCC reports like one after another coming and the alarms beginning to sound with increasing urgency right and i think for a lot of us we couldn't hold back this sinking feeling that the movements that we were building were not enough, that we didn't have the scale, we didn't have the political power, we didn't have the clout to truly contest in American politics to stop what we perceived was the greatest existential threat of our lifetimes. Um, And the thing that really kept me up at night was that millions of young people felt just like us and didn't have a real political vehicle to vocalize their fear and frustration and, and, and to also fight for a better world. A lot of people know our organization from 2018 and the sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office. But our story actually started in early 2016, even prior to the Trump election, um, where all of these friends in the climate movement started coming together to basically strategically plan for or front load uh, a new movement led and by and for young people that could scale to stop climate change.
2: Let me ask one thing about that, which is, so you're in these movements and you come to the conclusion they're not enough. They don't have enough power. And I think a very easy thing at that moment in time to do would be to say, we're doomed, right? <laughs> Waxman-Markey has failed. The Obama administration, with all of its high hopes and its ability to inspire people, and you know one of the most um, talented politicians in generations, it failed to, to do enough on climate. That American politics is simply not up to the task. Um, And certainly, you know, eight or nine, um, you know, young people, like, how do you how do you take the step from all of this together has not been enough to, you know what, I bet we can fix that?
1: I think it was a deep grounding in the stakes of what we were up against. And in a deep sense, I think we were really aware of what was at stake that we saw the, the, this crisis of legitimacy emerging in our media and in our political institutions. We were seeing more and more people losing faith in the, this concept of democracy and in, in the ability of our political system to actually solve the greatest problems of our time. And at the same time... We were witnessing the crisis like genuinely worsening, like genuinely worsening and and affecting people's lives. And for me to say that it's too hard, that we can't do it, to be pessimistic about the situation was simply not a good enough excuse. There were just like it, it was an actual emergency. And looking around at us, like nobody had a plan. Nobody had a plan. And I think when we look back in history, we have seen these moments where at peak crises moments, whether it's the Great Depression, whether it was World War II, whether it was, you know, whatever it was, we have seen our governments and our society rise to the task and handle it. And I think at this point we were saying our Governments are, and and the public writ large doesn't understand the urgency of the crisis that we're in. It's our duty to sort of like figure out a plan to solve it.
2: So I know that the, the 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 strategy of Sunrise has changed over time, but but in that first moment where you all feel that you have some idea of what the plan is that others don't, what does that plan look like? What what was the initial theory of the case?
1: So you know, at the beginning, we knew that to achieve transformations on the scale of stopping climate change. It would take massive government and society-wide action over a sustained period of time, decades across every level uh, of society. And we knew it would also take a movement unlike what we've seen in probably half a century to build enough power to actually govern for a decade or more to get us there, right? So during the period, uh, we did this strategic planning period between 2016 and 2017, and really in order to come up with a blueprint strategy that would be proactive rather than reactive to political conditions in the United States. And when tackling a problem as immense as the climate crisis, we discovered that it would require probably three key ingredients at that time. So one was people power. And what I mean when I say people power is like a large vocal active base of public support. Um, There's some social scientists out there. There's this lady named Erica Chenoweth who has done a lot of studies of uh, social movements throughout history that have like overthrown dictators and things like that. And she found that if 3.5% of a population gets active on a particular issue, that means they are voting, they're donating, they're, they're out in the streets, they're talking to the neighbors on this issue that movement inevitably wins. So 3.5% of the population in America would be about 11 million. And we also understood, you know, there's this super majority of Americans who understand climate change is happening and want the government to do something about it. So we have a ton of, of passive support for this issue. Now we need to translate that into active support, people who are actively participating in our movement.
2: Tell tell me more about what active means here, because you'd said sort of voting and leaflets, but clearly it's more than voting. How how is active defined?
1: Yeah. So, you know, basically the way that you would define, say, passive is like if, if you went up to somebody on the street and you were like, hey, do you think that climate change is caused by humans and that the government should do something to stop it? And that person says yes, and they go about their lives and they do nothing else about it. Active support is a whole range of things. It's like people who are, so as I said, voting on the issue, people who are donating to institutions and organizations that are uh, supporting the process of getting us closer to a solution. It includes people being, it actually includes people being active on social media and engaging online. So joining email lists and being active on those email serves. Perhaps like taking online actions like signing pledges and participating in call in days and, and, and more. It can also look really creative. For example, I think um, for Sunrise, we actually need people who are able to donate whatever they can, however they can, to the movement in order to sustain us. So we have um, moms and dads who cook for our retreats and our organization, um, who support our movements with volunteer housing so our volunteers can actually live and, and eat for free in in their homes, I think it looks like a whole number of things. And it looks like giving your time, whether it's one hour a week or 50 hours of your week towards the broader aim um, associated with organizations trying to solve the climate crisis.
2: Okay. So that's, so, so plank one is people power.
1: Exactly. Yep. Plank one, people power, large vocal active base of public support. So the second plank is political power. So what we mean by political power is like a critical mass of enthusiastically supportive public officials, not folks who are talking about it as a buzzword, not folks that are saying the words on the campaign trail but failing to back it up with action, but enthusiastic people who are ready to fight tooth and nail once they get into office to make this a reality. And our big moment, like it was for many people, was when Trump won office, right? We saw Trump win the presidency. We saw the House and Senate go to a climate-denying GOP. Within days, we heard that Donald Trump was putting Rex Tillerson, literally the former CEO of ExxonMobil, to be secretary of state, meaning the guy that would be negotiating climate treaties for the United States of America, Um, He was then replaced by Mike Pompeo, who has the distinct honor of being the all-time highest recipient of oil and gas money while in Congress. I saw Ryan Zinke opening up federal lands to lease to oil and gas companies, coal lobbyists leading the EPA. We were like, oh, my God, this is a mess. We need allies in office because otherwise we're just railing against a group of people who aren't accountable to our values or our communities. And... You know, recognizing that people power without political power just is not, will not suffice. And I would say the other side to the political power thing as well is that doing good strategy, I think, means being really honest about where things are going in our politics. Right now, Everybody's buzzing about this fight within the Democratic Party about the direction of the party, right? And there is a real debate about whether the party embraces, like, broad social programs um, that works as hard as possible to develop these comprehensive plans that don't leave the most vulnerable amongst us behind to guarantee these, like, universal human rights to all people. And we think that the outcome of that fight is really essential and will affect the direction of climate policymaking in the United States.
2: Let me ask, how do you describe the other side of that debate?
1: I actually think Wax and Markey is a great example of that. I think it's a worldview that is attempting to use market-based solutions to solve our problems solely, like seeing the market as like a silver bullet solution to solve our problems through, you know, the cap and trade mechanism of of 2008. I think it looks like not actually utilizing the full force of the government um, for the public good and putting a lot of heft and uh, using the bully pulpit of most many of these politicians to actually push for massive social reforms that ensure that all people in America have rights to clean air, clean water, a good home, health insurance, and more. So that's kind of how I see the distinction. And I think what we're saying is that the time has come for us to build a value system and a government and a society that sees a government that sees its role as protecting the interests of all people, regardless of class, creed, race, whatever, where you live, how much money you have, et cetera.
2: So I want to – so that's super helpful. I want to come back to that in a minute, but let's get the third plank.
1: Great. So people power, political power. And then the third part of this is what we call political alignment. And it's a little bit wonky, but what we mean by a political alignment is essentially a grouping of social, economic, political forces that are – Broadly aligned around and are able to define the political common sense and shared agenda for society. So that's a lot of words, but basically, you can think about it as in the United through United States history, it becomes a little bit easier. We've basically had two major dominant alignments of the last eighty years. Uh, the first was the New Deal alignment, time of FDR, the Roosevelt, sort of the Rooseveltian. Policy making of the New Deal through the '60s and '70s, where we saw these dominant values around an an active government that w- being essential to protect and preserve basic rights. FDR's Second Bill of Rights include people should be guaranteed a, a job, an affordable home, health care, living wage, education, and more. And we saw, you know, during this period of time, just the m- massive passing of social policy at, that helped elevate and support working Americans to get out of the Great Depression. And then, you know, we can get into this more as well with the New Deal. But just to get to the other piece of it is the Reagan, alignment, what we call the Reagan alignment, which was a new set of values that really came to reign supreme and emerged kind of like starting with in the Nixon era, but really not till Reagan in the 80, like mid to late 80s and, and 90s. Um That was fully focused on, you know, deregulation, that government was the problem. I think – what was that quote from Reagan where he says the – the most terrifying words, the nine most terrifying words are, I'm here from the government and I'm here to help. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> and we saw this, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality, this in- individual responsibility that the market would solve our problems and also like a, a a broad disinvestment in the public sector. And I think, you know, we actually in the process of creating Sunrise, we listened to the the conversation you had with Heather McGee like two years ago, almost exactly to this time in 2016 about the role that that racism actually holds in, in holding the Reagan alignment together. Just talking about how this strategy of flaring racial resentments in order to consolidate power and stigmatize government action for the public good actually was having monstrous effects on our ability to solve the climate crisis when what the crisis requires is these broad-based programs and solutions uh, to attack the problem commensurate to the scale of the problem.
2: And something I would just add to that, because I think it's really underplayed, is the other thing that you cannot take out of the Reagan alignment is the Cold War. You cannot Mm -hmm. take out when he's saying things like the scarce words in the English language are, I'm from the government and I'm here to help, that the context is, well, look over there at what happens when you have a truly huge government. Look at what communism becomes. Look at what the Soviet Union is. And I mean, now it's easy. You look back on that stuff because it often goes unmentioned and it's not the context we live in. And I think people just forget that that's what gave a lot of that rhetoric its power. And And among the things that I think we're starting to recognize but is not well enough recognized certainly in Washington is just how different... Politics is when the Cold War is no longer the context, because even Mm -hmm. in the like late 90s, early aughts, it was still the context, like the the people in power still that was their operative machinery. um, And now it just isn't.
1: That's really interesting. Yeah, I hadn't exactly thought about it like that and at the same time you know we were well aware that like a lot of the the groups and institutions that make up uh, the Reagan alignment also included like war hawks at the time like cold war uh war hawks and we saw this also rampant boom in military spending during this time as well um and and this interventionist foreign policy has become really dominant in our and in, in our politics so you know how this all comes together is i think Emerging, especially in 2016, but I think we saw this rupture after the recession in 2008, and and Occupy with with the the activity around Occupy Wall Street, um, we were witnessing this this real anger at the at the dominant alignment that existed, the Reagan alignment, this this crisis of legitimacy in our institutions, this horrific levels of inequality that we were seeing, um, and and. I think we've also seen it in the rise of both Donald Trump, but also in the rise of of Bernie Sanders, is that there are people on both sides of the political aisle who are pissed off at the political establishment and have completely seen the way that our politicians have discredited themselves and are frustrated and want something new. Um, and, and there's this new sort of like populist sentiment that's also erupting that is about this this narrative, about like the, the concentration of wealth for a few individuals that has left out millions of people in this country. So we think that there's actually a new opportunity at this particular rupture for a people's alignment where movements, institutions, think tanks, businesses, unions that are organized around a new set of values aimed at building a government and an economy that actually works for all people could begin to emerge
3: if we do our work right.
2: I think that's a good point to stop for, for a quick break. We will be right back.
3: Support for this podcast comes from constant contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need constant contact. Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact. Helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com.
0: Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team.
2: So a lot of mass movements don't like to operate within the constructs of political power. They see political institutions as corrupt, which to some degree they often are. Um, And a lot of movements that aim to win political power lose a lot in terms of their mass movement because of the compromises you have to make, because of the dealing you have to do, because of the rooms you end up in, because of – the way you end up, you know, trying to protect your allies, even though what they're doing seems wrong to, to to your mass movement. And it's like you can imagine on different ends of this, like Occupy just did not want to deal with political power at all, right? Like that was a that was meant to be a mass movement and it had a real distaste for political institutions, which um I think Occupy has had a tremendous influence, but it has not, it did not itself become a like an organized movement changing what government does. Um, and then, you know, you can think of a million kind of pressure groups that are just trying to wield political power. How do you think about the tension between those two?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, so, you know, it's it's just baked into our DNA. We build both people power and political power. I think there have been many movements in the past that have completely sworn off politicians, but I think we approach it from a different angle. We have this principle that we employ, which is no permanent friends, no permanent enemies. And that is to say that we need to engage and we need to dance with politicians because politics in general is incredibly important for us to actually address the material changes we need to make to solve climate change. But at the same time, like even if we are allied with somebody like Senator Markey or even Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in this instant, just because we vibe with them now, it doesn't necessarily mean that we will vibe with them in the future. And I think it's a similar thing with any of these other politicians who represent perhaps other factions of the Democratic Party, um, that we actually want everybody to be getting to the level where they are putting forward p- policies and plans that are uh, like the Green New Deal, that are are like the plans that Jay Inslee is putting forward in his presidential campaign. Um, and so I think... For us, we've seen it as essential to engage with the political system, but at the same time, we also see Sunrise's role as being on the vanguard of the movement ecosystem writ large.
2: So, one of the I want to go back now to this question of political power, and and, and maybe use Waxman-Markey as an example. So, for people who don't know Waxman-Markey, that was a cap and trade bill. It was um, I, one of the, the the major pieces of legislation moved forward in Obama's first term, passed the House, um, and then failed in the Senate. And it's like a good example to me of like the, the 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 possibilities and costs of like actually trying to work within the system because it's, a bit, it's messy legislation. It was, would have been a huge deal, much better than what we have now, but it certainly would not have been enough to solve the entirety of the problem. But the thing about Waxman Markey, and I, I'd be curious to hear the way you think about it, is that I think it gets at that debate you were talking about well. Sometimes I see this debate framed as like they're the people who want to solve the problem and then there are those people over there who don't or they're corrupt or they're sellouts or whatever. And, you know, I, I reported on Waxman Markey and, and obviously Markey is the same guy now who's co-sponsoring the Green New Deal. And the reason he was on that bill and the reason others were was that when they thought about how do you get Evan by from Indiana – who represents a bunch of fossil fuel extractors and so on, or did at that point, to sign on to a bill, you have to make all these compromises. How do you how do you not freak people out when you need their representatives to vote for it, and you end up um, having to make having to, to make these sort of incremental pieces of legislation as an effort to get enough people around the table to overcome the system's institutional inertia. And I notice now, like a lot of people in uh, particularly on the left, will look back at. Things that happened that way in healthcare, climate, and others, and seem to have very little uh like very little patience for that view. And maybe it was a wrong view. But if it's a, if it's a wrong view, I'm curious, sort of, what you think it got wrong, like what 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 they were misunderstanding at the time that is understood better now.
1: So I was honored to be uh Senator Markey's guest to the State of the Union earlier this year, which was quite an experience. And I sat down with him and I asked him, you know, wow, this. Is a great opportunity for me to pick your brain about what actually happened in Waxman-Markey and the evolution of it since. And I was sort of asking him, what is different between 2008 and 2018 or 2009 and 2019? And his answer was, the biggest difference is that we actually have an army of people outside of the halls of Congress who are fighting to stop climate change. And I think a big difference between then and now, you know, when you look at how the, the Waxman Markey bill was crafted, it was like insider meetings between some of these like green organizations, big mainstream climate or, uh, environmental organizations, uh, industry representatives, and political elites. And there was actually this big divide between the people who were crafting the policy of Waxman Markey and grassroots, everyday people who were bearing the brunt of the crisis or or were communities of color and and, and economically disenfranchised folks who had been left out of processes like this for a very long time. Um, and there actually wasn't a lot of social movement of social participation, social disruption taking place during that time that could cultivate the kinds of political conditions that would make it impossible for something like Waxman-Markey to, to not pass. So I think there were a few different things going on then, and and I would say what's changed now is also just a deeper look at what solving the climate crisis uh, without exacerbating existing inequalities along lines of race and class will take. And I think what the Green New Deal attempts to do, which you know, it's kind of amazing to see Ed and Markey go from 2008 to 2018 being the co-sponsor of this resolution. Is that it actually attempts to ensure that racial and economic justice, that, uh, that centering inequality in the fight to stop climate change is part and parcel of how we so- solve the crisis writ large and that we cannot solve it without that.
2: Yeah, I think a, a big part uh, – to talk about the first part of what you said first and then we should move to some, some Green New Deal pieces – I always think about that old FDR quote, you know, make me do it, which I'm not sure if he actually said, but but it is a classic yeah. quote of of the i I'm not sure either. Tried to find yeah, it. Yeah, no, it's very hard. <laughs> um, but and so I, I do think that's that's right, right? That there is this context that politicians operate in and in the context that Ed Markey was in in 2008, um Waxman Markey looked like the best bet in the context he's in now. Um you know, the Green New Deal looks like the best bet. But it It creates this kind of interesting dynamic, I think, particularly between the the left and the Democratic Party, wherein it's like one way you can imagine that is saying that like those two, like the inside and outside players operate in a kind of symbiosis and both of them need to do their jobs really well for anything to happen. And so if, like, the outside players haven't created the context, the inside players can't, you know, um, do something as big as people will want. Um, or if the inside players do a bad job, then the the, the context of the outside players has created is um, failed. Uh, but what I often see happening instead is that the two hate each other <laughs> because it's sort of taken as either um, – like, the criticism from one side to the other taken, well, you don't understand or you're the one creating the the obstacles in the first place by not being willing to dream big enough – and there's this this funny thing of people who, in some ways, should seem to be like they're in, they're in partnership, whether or not they realize it, uh, constantly ending up in um, in a, in opposition. At least when the the, the rubber hits the road, uh, of of actually trying to get something done. And I just I wonder if that's something that that you all think about, particularly within the context of no permanent enemies and no permanent friends.
1: Yeah, it is. You know, it, I think it's essential. For me, actually, just the last eight months alone have been a learning and a lesson moment in real time of this exactly. You know, I'll give you some examples. We did the action in Nancy Pelosi's office and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez joined us. There were like 5,000 articles that were written about climate change and the Green New Deal within 48 hours. It like immediately skyrocketed. to becoming one of the most important issues in our nation's politics, especially for Democratic voters. And we saw the national conditions, the, the political conditions within which we were operating shift drastically, and this whole center of gravity move, right? And in that new rupture, there were political possibilities that were previously Thought of as impossible became possible. So one example about how how the political realm and the the social movement realm and the people power realm kind of fit together, we endorsed and supported this this candidate um, Chloe Maxman to run for office in the state of Maine. She turned a district blue for the first time in American politics. She was just she's. I think, a year older than I am. So she's very young. And she ran on climate change. She ran on clean air and clean water, clean and and green energy, uh, amongst a lot of other things in in this district in rural Maine. And within six to eight months of wh- of her getting elected and all of this energy taking off for the Green New Deal, she was able to pull together the state AFL-CIO uh, that represents 40,000 workers in the state of Maine. She was able to pull together other partners as well and, and organizations and pass a Maine state Green New Deal that would get the state of Maine to 80% renewable energy by 2040, which is, Incredible! I never thought that Maine would be the first, one of the first states to make that happen. Another example is is you know like the the CCPA in New York that just passed a, a few weeks ago, um, where organizations over 150 plus organizations were working to. Create the the Climate and Community Protection Act. That was one of the most ambitious climate policies in America. Um, this was, you know, frontline organizations, environmental justice, labor, sunrises at the table, uh, political organizations, and more that had been trying to get this through the state legislature over and over and over again. Finally, in 2018, you know, Sunrise knocked tens of thousands of doors. Many other organizations knocked doors for three candidates that were able to flip that state legislature to becoming democratically controlled. And within six months, New York has passed and and Cuomo has signed one of the most ambitious climate policies in America. So that just gives you a sense that, like, we need these different parts of these institutions to work together. Sunrise sees itself as really being... One of the grouping of organizations that's pushing the fold of what's politically possible and moving into it into becoming politically inevitable. Um, And I think that we are consistently trying to be grounded in what it actually takes to solve the issue of climate change, not what feels politically possible in this moment, but what it actually takes. You know, so that's one side of the puzzle. The other side of the puzzle is we're not naive that when push comes to shove, we're not going to get every single thing that we want. We know we're going to have to compromise. We know that there are going to be disappointments. We know it's not going to be perfect. But at the same time, if we hold our ground as individuals pushing for what's necessary right now, maybe we'll get a lot farther on what the compromise actually is than if we started right now with like, oh, how do we get Republicans on board?
2: And I think I mean I, I also want to say, like, I think a crucial context of all this is that there was a dream in the aughts that you could get Republicans on board. I mean, John McCain was the first presidential candidate with cap and trade in his presidential platform. Um, You know, in the Senate, you did have like an effort with Lindsey Graham involved that maybe you would get some Republican support for cap and trade. And that's just gone. And I really think that that changes the context. I mean, moving from a period in American politics where people are trying to govern um, with bipartisan support because that's the way you get anything done. To where to a period where you know you can't get any bipartisan support, so maybe you also just can't get anything done. But if you can, it's going to come through your own side mobilizing. It really changes the the underlying incentives.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, I I think something that I have grown much more intimate and learned a lot more about in the process of creating and 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 uh, working with Sunrise is just the. Permeability of the American political system uh, to corruption. And, you know, when you think about the fact that the science was settled about this problem in 19 like in the 1960s. I mean, we knew that climate change was a problem that would pose threats, like in the early 1900s. So it's in the 1960s. And then in the 70s, and and you're seeing Companies like ExxonMobil, they're best scientists saying that climate change poses a threat, we need to do something about it, uh, and and sounding the alarm as early as 50, 60 years ago. And then in the 80s, seeing some of the first testimony from uh, in Congress calling the climate crisis essentially an existential threat to human survival and our society. Um, And then it's like there's this moment. That happens around the 80s, 90s, and, and really ramps up in the 2000s, where all of a sudden there's a flip. And these fossil fuel corporations realize that to do something to drastically reduce emissions in this country would require hurting and diminishing perhaps the entirety of the fossil fuel industry's bottom line, their profit motive, is, is burning fossil fuels, Right. And we see, you know, the CEO of ExxonMobil arguing against the Kyoto Protocol, which is like the precursor to the Paris Agreement. We saw we see that the beginning of the Exxon of, of ExxonMobil and a lot of these other corporations beginning to actually retool some of the vestigial structures from um, the tobacco industry's misinformation and, and public campaigns to confuse people about the science relating cancer to tobacco and smoking. And we see them beginning to wage this all-out war on science and uh, sowing this massive confusion in the public about whether climate change is happening or not or whether, you know, humans are causing it. And the ramifications of that are still rampant. And you're right. There is – there actually is this period where there are these politicians on the Republican side. It seems like there's even like an opportunity for – quote unquote, bipartisanship on the issue of climate change. Um, But in the last 10 or 15 years, it has completely dissolved.
2: Have you ever seen the the Newt Gingrich and Nancy Pelosi on the couch commercial?
1: Yeah, I have. That's That's crazy. That's a crazy
2: (laughs) artifact, isn't it?
1: Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, there's this there are these moments where, um, as you said, John McCain, even George Bush is like talking about the effects of the of the climate crisis and how it's uh, it's. Obvious that we need to solve the problem, and then it's like you know we have Al Gore and the Inconvenient Truth. I don't really remember. Honestly, I cannot remember for the life of me when that actually came out.
2: I want to say 2005. I'm pretty sure it's 2005. I actually think that's what kicks off the polarization of the issue. I think I I have this like I feel bad because I think Al Gore was like really doing the god's work there, but I think that Inconvenient Truth is the beginning of like. All possibility of bipartisanship on this evaporating, not through fault of his own, but through fault of the way the right treated it. Now, maybe that would have been inevitable, and it just would have no, had totally. another locus. But that that kicked off the um, the the move of climate change into what now seems to me to be a functionally symbolic issue in politics. Right? It's like a it's like an are you right or left culturally issue, as opposed to like a policy problem um, to solve.
1: Yeah, and if you actually look at the numbers of that time, it points towards this, like during the period of an inconvenient truth, some of the earliest campaigning and climate awareness campaigns are are really robustly happening. You see uh, public perception on the issue, public support for doing something about the climate crisis rise to pretty significant levels amongst Democrats and Republicans, and a lot of these people, like the Koch brothers, who people don't know, but actually made their entire fortune and uh, through uh, their oil and gas empire, realize that this is a pretty big problem, and they need to do some. They need to wage like an all-out war to decrease the amount of public support and, and so sow confusion in the public about the issue. And you know, now we have this this moment where we have one party that is completely polarized against taking action on climate. And if you follow the money, you see that 80 percent of donations from the fossil fuel industry and fossil fuel corporations go to Republican politicians. You see people like Mitch McConnell taking in, like, $2 $2 million, I think, in the last cycle from oil and gas. And you're seeing just you have the Republican side, but you also see the, the a Democratic side that I think has really lacked a lot of moral cr- clarity on this issue and lacked a deep sense of moral obligation and of urgency uh, to fight and protect gener- like the future of generations to come.
2: We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. something that that's embedded in a lot of Sunrise's work. Uh, there's been a lot of organizing on on behalf of the movement to get uh, particularly Democratic party politicians but politicians in general to forego climate um, fossil fuel industry donations and there's a there's a very as you were just saying a, a follow the money approach And I think that like this is one of the divides I see in the way people like visualize the political difficulty of the issue like one version is that look, the public supports action on climate change. And the problem is you have these super-moneyed interests like ExxonMobil and the Koch brothers who are spending their, their cash to confuse and obstruct. And so far it's working, but if you could free the system from their cash, it would stop working. And another version of it is that that's a problem but it's interlinked um, but also separate from if you solve the problem you would not solve these other two problems which is number one a republican party which has developed a symbolic opposition to climate change um and in american politics it's super hard to get anything done um in in a partisan way uh partly with filibusters and so on and then number two though which often seems to me to be the biggest problem is that the public might, in theory, want action on climate change. And if you ask them, you know, should we spend money on R&D? Like, that's great. But they don't want to pay carbon taxes or see their gasoline bill go up. It's like there's a a view that the public is on board for climate change until the moment gas prices go up. And like, that would be the end of that. And I'm I'm curious how you conceptualize the public here, because among like the inside D.C. people I know who have been around this issue for a long time, that's the one they're most... Conf- like foiled by? Like, how do you build a bill that is big enough to actually solve the issue, but does not activate like the public's fear of sacrifice and change and giving things up, Um, you know, for a f- like to stop future problems now?
1: Right. I actually think the answer lies in the exact way that you worded the question. You know, I think for so long we have talked about solutions to the c- climate crisis and frame them about taking something away from people. You know, you'll have to pay more. Gas prices are going to go up. uh, Like the suffering is going to be put and placed squarely on the shoulders of the middle and working class. Um, And I think that actually we need to change our perception of how we talk about solutions to the climate crisis. I'll give you a very concrete example. I was on a flight to Oklahoma City um, a few days ago, and I sat next to this man who was very sweet, an older gentleman, uh, whose dad was like a dairy farmer in Idaho. He had moved to Dallas, Texas, and he asked me what I do, and my uh, career is interesting, so we often end up talking about politics. And he was asking me all of these questions. He was. I told him I worked on the Green New Deal, and he was like, wait, so does this really mean that we have to stop flying planes, and, and that like you know it's all about cow flatulence and all of these crazy things. Like, you know, I'm just not that convinced that climate change is actually caused by humans. I know it's happening, I can see it all around me, but I'm not convinced that humans are causing it. You know, I explained it to him, and I was like, look, this is what the Green New Deal is. It's about tackling the climate crisis. It's also about providing people with tens of millions of good jobs. It's about trying to reinvigorate an economy and put money back in the hands of working people. It's about making sure that we alleviate inequality between different groups of people and ensuring that people have clean air and clean water. And he thought about it and he said, you know, no one has ever talked to me about it in that way. And I thought this moment was so poignant because I think we talk about the climate crisis like something that middle and working class people need to take on the brunt of when, you know, it's been 100 corporations throughout the history of America that have contributed to 71% of the emissions and, and, and the warming associated with the climate crisis. Um, and we're talking to people whose, whose wages have stagnated for the last 40 years. They're seeing an increasing number amount of the enormous wealth of the United States go to a smaller and smaller group of people at the top. And they're rightfully upset about that. And they're like, why should I pay for this? Um, You saw that with the yellow vest movement. I will say there is a literal armed resistance (laughs) that has been taking place over the last month in, in opposition to the cap and trade bill in Oregon, where like Republican state representatives are literally being held up as heroes because they ran away to Idaho to avoid taking a vote on this bill. An armed resistance, you know? So I think that, I think we really need to think about how we message and and, and communicate about this issue because the time has has passed where it's it's really, A, going to be solved by a little tax and a little fee here and there. But also, like if the problem is as comprehensive as we understand, it requires solutions that are just as comprehensive. We cannot solve the problem without talking about labor, without jobs, without talking about health and equity. We should talk about those because um, also they're the issues that people care about right here and right now.
2: So I think that's a good bridge into the Green New Deal. And so let me try to frame the argument I hear on this from people concerned about it. And I'd like to hear the the way you respond to them. So their view is that when you attach an expansive climate agenda to also a jobs guarantee, to also Medicare for all, to also a $15 or a minimum wage or living wage, to to also, to also, to also, that what you're doing is you are amplifying the amount of disruption people are going to expect from that. You're amplifying the number of enemies that's going to have. You're you're, you're amplifying the number of um, people who are going to feel they're going to lose something. And that it, like their fear is that by bolting a bunch of other controversial things onto an already controversial thing, that instead of magnifying support, you magnify opposition because people just tend to be more afraid of change than they are desirous of it. And so you have this kind of like world of people I find in D.C. who are used to trying to frame policies in terms of trying to lower their level of disruption in order to calm people into accepting their passage, worried that this strategy of accelerating disruption um, so you can address more things simultaneously is going to like freak people like the guy on the plane out because – I actually believe that if everybody could sit next to you on a plane, we might pass a Green New Deal. But (laughs) instead, they watch Fox News and, you know, like hear about things in the paper and, you know, get email forwards from their uncle and so on.
1: I guess what I'll start out by saying is that the strategy that we have been employing over the last couple of decades clearly hasn't been working right now. So why not try something different? And I think that if we attempt to pass climate policy, this is kind of a reiteration of what I said previously, but if we try to pass climate policy without economic equity considerations, it will simply just be exacerbating existing inequalities with like a little less pollution. And I think, you know, let's just consider how we actually tackle this problem If we want to address the climate crisis, we need to construct and build and implement a labor force of probably tens of millions of people. Right now, that labor force uh, in green jobs, in, in solar and renewable and in a lot of these industries, those are bad jobs. They don't pay people enough. Their hours are terrible. They don't have benefits. And we're actually just putting a ton of people in jobs that are not family sustaining in order to solve the climate crisis. I think there's, a you know, when we consider the effects of climate change on black and brown communities, there is a reason why black communities experience asthma rates three to five times higher than the national average. There's a reason why indigenous populations are much more likely to be siting near polluted facilities or pipelines or things like that. It is because of of decades of systemized racist housing policy and and more that's actually like led to these communities being the most vulnerable to environmental damages, but also now to climate threats. So I think it's honestly, I think the only people who really believe that we can do it without addressing labor and jobs and health um, and equity are, are literally people in D.C. who have been there for a little bit too long. And I will say, I think, you know, the numbers just don't show that. I think, yes, we live in an extremely toxic media environment that is uh, polarizing particularly older white voters and culturally, as you said, stigmatizing a lot of these ideas that actually are to the benefit of of all Americans. I think that's entirely true. I also think that there are tons of people who generally vote for the Democratic Party, but also who identify as moderates, who identify as independents, who are actually really inspired by the Green New Deal in this moment. I'll give you an example. A, a poll just came out yesterday. And, you know, I was actually surprised at the at the way that the Green New Deal has hel- held up considering that, you know, another study came out showing that the Koch brothers had already spent about $2.5 million um, on lobbying efforts against the Green New Deal just in the last eight months. But this mayor's poll showed that like 69 to 70 percent of self-identified moderates support a Green New Deal, 64 percent of independents, 55 percent of rural voters, even, I mean, 40 percent of white evangelical Christians. Support a green new deal. and and this number, if you look at young people, it's like seventy seven, I, I forget the I forget the exact number, but I think it's like seventy seven percent of young people of both political parties support a green New deal, even after the onslaught of of the media environment. So I'm kind of like, what are y'all afraid of? The party that you should be invigorating? The base that you should be getting out to vote for you, that you know will support you in these elections, is excited about the Green New Deal and wants to see you support it. Uh, Millennials, and I bet Gen Z is even higher than this, millennials support a a move to an 100% renewable energy economy by like 90% or higher. A lot of Republicans and Democrats actually support major planks of the Green New Deal. Um, You know, when you take away some of the branding as well, like investments in sustainable agriculture or renewable energy. These are really popular ideas. We need to get away from this idea that they are not. These are extremely popular. And I think if we lean in, it could actually be a winning vision for America.
2: And I'll, I'll note one thing that surprised me about that poll is that um, so Green New Deal polls at 63 percent. Um, and the, the way they describe it there is a Green New Deal to address climate change by investing government money in green jobs and energy efficient infrastructure. So I'm not surprised really that that polls well but they pull a tax on emissions of carbon based fuels such as coal oil natural gas and generally whenever you put the word tax into something it like <laughs> falls to zero but that pulls 50% support 44% um opposition yeah, which is I was not, amazed. not bad actually um
1: yeah that's not terrible
2: the the other thing that has struck me about the the green new deal framing um is that I, it, it goes back a little bit to what we're talking about around the end of bipartisanship as a, as a viable strategy for passing anything in American politics, which wasn't, again, wasn't always true, right? Like there's there a long period where like that's how you got things done to the extent you got anything done. But if that's no longer true and it isn't, um, well, then you do have to move from a, a, a theory of lowering opposition, which is, I think, the context in which a lot of Bills and legislative strategies have been crafted for a long time. Like, how do you, how do you make the other side least opposed to this? Um, to a bill of mobilizing and increasing support on your own side. And it may be that it doesn't work. It may be that nothing works. I sometimes think that American politics might just be a, a question without an answer right now. But if you're going to make it work, it's gonna have to be that enough people on your side want it, that it, it generates the force to, to like hit the top of the priority list when there's a moment that your side has enough power to pass things. And if you want that, well, then you have to have something that people can see benefit from. I mean, if all climate policy does is take things away from you, then even if you have like a Democratic president and Democratic Senate and House, if they want to win the midterm election, they're going to focus on something like an earned income tax credit or a healthcare expansion that people might like as opposed to something that they will just hate. (laughs) And so the idea of bolting it onto things that might actually be – Supported does not like it it seems it seems resonant with the actual political moment we're in, which is different than the one that, you know, people plausibly thought we were in 10 years ago, but certainly that we were in 30 years ago.
1: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I think I mean when we look back in history as well, we studied a lot about the civil rights movement during the process of of you know frontloading sunrise. And if you look back at in like 1963, people were saying the exact same thing about civil rights as they are about passing legislation on climate change. All these pundits and people were saying action at the federal level was wholly unlikely. Kennedy wasn't going to pay you know was paying scant attention to it. And a year later LBJ signs into law, like one year later, LBJ signs into law the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and then a year after that the Voting Rights Act of 1965. And if you look at what was happening in 1963 to get to that outcome, you see that there was a a horrific bombing of a black church in Birmingham, Alabama, which sets off. All of this, you know, social activity. You see the governor send in the national guard, and 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 resistance to that uh, take place as well. You see this children's march take place, where children are campaigning against segregation. They are literally being bitten by dogs. They are being knocked down by fire hoses that are that are that are spewing water at them, powerful enough to rip the bark off of trees. Um, you see this like huge media frenzy. Then for the for the two weeks during that period of time like, covering civil rights way more in, in like, a couple of weeks than it had done in years preceding. You see that year also the March on Washington, 250,000 people. And, like, I think there were, like, 800 demonstrations in the weeks preceding it. Like, 15,000 people got arrested. And all of this social activity, both the utilizing the bully pulpit of people like LBJ, but also cultivating and ripening the political conditions in the country and injecting this urgent message, is what ultimately moved people from saying this is impossible to this is inevitable in like twelve months.
2: And that actually is a nice bridge to one of the last questions I wanted to ask you: uh, the civil rights movement, which is something that everybody who covers the sunrise movement actions mentions, is the prevalence of singing. Can you talk a bit about <laughs> yeah. singing as a as a tactic and why it's why why it's so defining for the, the 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 way you all organize?
1: Yeah. I think singing for us carries a few different tools. So we actually lead this workshop at every one of our major trainings. That is a songwriting workshop and it's called Why Did We Stop Singing? Um and it goes, you know, in in our movements We use song as a way to engage emotionally and to use song to both build joy and feel like we are a young, youthful, joyous movement. We use it in times of fear or intensity uh, as a way to show solidarity with one another. to actually like rise up in unison and show our strength. We use it in times of, of sorrow or pain to actually give voice to our feelings. We use it in moments of anger. I, I think, you know, if you look at every moment, many, many movements throughout history, people have used song as as ways to bring people together and give voice and share the story about our movement and, and what we're here to do. Um, so we think it's really essential to... Our movement being successful to engage deeply in in singing and 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 to teach everybody that you don't have to be like Beyonce to be able to uh, sing and join together with with fellow humans. Like this is a process that we can all engage in together.
2: Given how much you think about the stakes of this and the, the how much rides on success, how do you deal with the fear here of failure?
1: Hmm. Yeah. We are certainly intimate with the idea of our own failure. I think it sits really heavy on us and the stakes are high. You know, I'm reminded of this. uh, We were at a strategy retreat earlier this summer with some of our leadership team. And and the facilitator there posed us a question and asked us to answer in turn to fill in the blank. If Sunrise navigates this political moment poorly, blank. And we went around in turn and said, and as you can imagine, the answers were like, if Sunrise navigates this moment poorly, millions of people die. Like my homeland is underwater. Many people, like children are taken from their parents and locked in cages, like really dire stuff. And you can just kind of see everyone's body start to hunch over, get smaller, like a a tear or two sort of leak from someone's eyes. Um, And then he asked us, you know, if Sunrise navigates this moment well, blank, and you also hear people say, you know, millions of people are elevated out of poverty. Like we save the lives of billions of people, we protect human civilization as we know it. And you see people like the lights start to glimmer in people's eyes, and you see them start to, to to sit up more straight and and feel this energy come like rush back into the group. And I've always felt like, you know, there's the fear, there's the despair, and there always will be the fear. I also think that there is the knowledge that something is more important than it. And so to me, I think throughout my life, I felt this really deep spiritual calling towards doing something to better people's lives because the only act that I feel like is truly unconscionable uh, and the only failure would be to do nothing at all. I look to like texts for wisdom and guidance in this moment as well. And one of my favorites is actually the Tao Te Ching. And there's this one passage or there's one part of a verse. It's the translation, so it's not exactly accurate, but it's something like, you know, do your work and then step back. And it is the only path to serenity. And so I kind of. See it as you know. If we are constantly striving, and we are constantly working, and 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 putting every ounce of ourselves to make this life better, that to me is is a life worth living.
2: I'd, I'd like to ask actually how you accessed the the Tao Te Ching because that's one of the books that I've taken a number of runs at and have like been have like like been turned back each time. <laughs> um, a, a couple weeks ago on the podcast, I had mentioned a short story that I thought was by Ursula Le Guin, and it wasn't. But I actually do have Ursula Le Guin, the the great science fiction writer, has this beautiful translation of the Tao Te Ching that mm. I have, and I've tried to go go to it, and it's a it's an amazing thing to contemplate. But I've I've not been able to access like the like the spiritual sustenance in it. So I'm, I'm curious, mm. um, given that I don't think it's a tra- the the tradition you grew up in, like how did you? How did you hook into it? How did you how did you find the part there that nourished you?
1: Yeah, you know, someone just recommended it to me and they said it was one of my friends and he said, you know, it's just the wisest thing. And I think something about the climate crisis is that it really imbues you with a sense of your own mortality, right? Like the world is in a really fragile place. My own life's trajectory is virtually uncertain and there's a ton of emotional turmoil. And in that moment, like, what does it actually mean to be a good leader? Uh, do I want to be the kind of leader that works 16 hours a day, is cranky, irritable, has stunted emotional group to the growth like to the extent that I have no compassion for the people that I work with? You know, I've seen a lot of leaders go this way where they've lost their own humanity in the pursuit of justice. Or do I want to be the kind of leader that can sit through the fire and emerge as loving and caring as they can be? Um, and relentlessly seeking, you know, health and joy right now, not 30 years in the future, but but right now. And so I think it's put me on this path to bringing meditation and mindfulness into my life, not just, you know, for 10 minutes every day, but working really hard to uh, permeate that into every part of, of, of my existence. It, I'm not always successful by any means. I'm on a path for sure. Um you know, incorporating a lot of of concepts of of gratitude every day, every hour of every day for what we have in this moment, knowing that it could be lost to us, uh, in the blink of an eye. And I think I just chanced upon, I just picked it up. He told me it was it was the wisest thing, and I was like, I could really use some wisdom in my life. And I've tried to approach it really practically. Um, some of my favorite verses of it are. Yeah, if you want to lead, uh, I'm I'm gonna butcher all of these because I'm doing it from memory. So please but don't everybody hold me to that. But Everybody who listens to this
2: is gonna go out and buy the book. So don't worry about it. You're 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 spreading the Tao.
1: Great, great, great. Yeah, I'm sure it really was wanting to be an evangelizing tradition. Um just uh you know, something about like if you want to lead people, the best thing you do is to follow. Um and that humility is is extremely important. Lessons about, you know To be good to people who are good and being good to people who are not good. Trusting people who are trustworthy and trusting people who are not trustworthy. And that's actually really when I think about that and apply it to like when I'm having a difficult difficult conversation with a partner, um, when I'm engaging with a a difficult person on my team, just like trying to practically apply it. Or uh, there's this one verse that's about failure. And talking about failure as an opportunity and blame. Like if you actually blame others, there's no actual end to the blame. And so finding ways that I can actually take personal responsibility for my own actions and who I am in this world rather than putting it on others. So investing in my own self-development in that way. And I'll say the last one is you know I love the metaphor that the Tao has for water. It just describes water as being really soft and 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 this liquid quality, but that it can break down the hardest and the most intransigent among us. You know, and I think I I'm like wow like. That really, when I read that in the morning, I try to cultivate that throughout the day. So I try to have a practice of waking up in the morning and reading just one verse and writing down like what my intention for the day is based off of that verse. And that makes it a little more accessible than trying to just like, you know, get through the whole thing.
2: That actually reminds me of something that I wanted to come back to that we talked about at the beginning, which is the the fear of humanity's future that has become so sharp. But I actually, I, I constantly get the question in my inbox for the show, is it moral? Should we even have children, given the world they'll face? And, you know, you see articles written now on this question. Um, Ocasio-Cortez has talked about it. And beneath that question is a profound pessimism about what lies in store for humanity. And I'm I'm curious how you approach that question, or at least that conversation.
1: Yeah, I'm always approaching the question from the vantage point of how do we actually build a social movement um, that is as powerful and, and big and vast as we need it to be to change politics as we know it in this country. And actually going back to uh, Sunrise's genesis, we kind of wrote a blueprint strategy and, and you know a version of our structure and a, also like a, a story for how we under, understood the crisis, this moment, and what it takes to solve it. And we beta tested it with like 200 people, and 100 of them were organizers and people in the climate movement, and 100 of them were um, just normal people who had never gotten involved in politics before in their life. And when we tested the story with them, all the organizers were like, oh, yeah, this is great. Totally awesome. Love the story. Keep going. And when we tested it with uh, other folks, they said, this is this story is depressing. This story makes me want to run away and hide. I hate it. Um, I don't want to be a part of this movement. And, you know, it was just like, "Hey, thanks, bye. (laughs) And we were like, wow, there is is a profound disconnect between what we think the important story to tell right now is and the story that actually can inspire and motivate and mobilize millions of people to join our movement. And we realized, you know, it is essential to talk about the emergency. It is essential to talk about the urgency of the crisis and how it's not an issue for decades to come. It is right now. And it is killing people in this instant. And at the same time, that must, that must, must, must be accompanied by a relentless sense of hope and optimism, not a naive one, an acknowledgement of the challenges we're up against, but a relentless sense of optimism that we can do it. And I really see, I think there are a lot of people in in politics whose role it is to tear the problem apart, to say why we can't do it, to talk about how it's so difficult and all of that. But I think I see, and I think Sunrise sees our role as communicating to America, communicating to people in this country, that we have actually embarked on massive social projects in the past. We have created Social Security. We have fought wars. We elevate people out of poverty every day with programs like Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid. We can do this. And I think we have to maintain that sentiment if this movement is going to be sustainable.
2: Um, so let me ask you the final question we use here, which is what are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience?
1: Yeah, so I would say the first book is Where Do We Go From Here by Martin Luther King. It is the last book he wrote before he was assassinated and it is just um, extremely, it, it's a quick read and, and very well written. I would say the second one is This Is An Uprising by Paul and Mark Angler, who I think uh, have detailed, you know, some of the most successful social movements in our history, both nationally and globally, and and why they are so. And the last one I would say, I didn't get to talk about this that much, but I actually carry around um, a pocket version of the Tao Te Ching. And I just think that It's really important to have a little bit of spirit and a little bit of guidance and a little bit of wisdom wherever you are. So I would recommend that as well.
2: And if you want to get involved in Sunrise, where can they do that?
1: You should go to sunrisemovement.org and you can join us there. We're also on all social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram.
2: Varshini Prakash, thank you very much.
1: Thank you for having me.
2: That's the show. Thank you to Varshini Prakash. Um, I mentioned in here that I get a lot of emails about this question of, is it moral to bring children into the world in an era of climate change? And I've actually shied away from doing this in one of the AMAs. I don't know. It just—it's a weird question to me. It's very personal in the sense that it, it asks why I had children, and I don't feel that's a—that's a thing for me to share. But I will talk about it in the in the broader sense here, which is I just don't believe we know what the story of the next generation is. Uh, Climate change is a real threat, and I'm going to be doing a lot more on the show to try to explore it and try to to understand how overriding and totalizing of an issue um uh, we should feel it to be. But I think the human story for all of its failures is beautiful, and there's meaning in it. And I think that anybody who has tried to believe they know what the next chapter of it will be has been um on average wrong, like deeply wrong. And not only that, you know, something that uh, Vershini was saying in here is that when you talk about this issue as a climate or really anything else as simply an issue of threat, like people, people fall back. But something I was thinking about while she was speaking is that I think sometimes we lack a vocabulary in politics to recognize that some challenges and the the overcoming of some threats, the, the work to make the world a better place is beautiful itself. I mean, there's something to having great challenges um, in life. Not to say I think it's great that we have climate change. I don't. But again, the idea that there will be Obstacles and difficulties for the next generations, just as there have been for every other one before, um, doesn't seem. It, it, it seems like a particular form of hubris of our age to say, "Well, that's it then. Um, that's too much." You know, we've only had antibiotics for a hundred years. The infant mortality rate for most of human history has been so high I can't look it in the face. Still, so high in some ways that I can't look it in the face. Um, but there's a lot of beauty in being human or at least i think there can be so if you are in politics and it is has become so much the lens that you can't look outside of it and see things beyond it that it's just like if that that becomes a story you imagine that will define um everybody who comes after us even though You know, humans have lived through horrible periods um, for for our entire history. And within that, their stories have been defined by the people they loved and the things they did and quiet moments and hard moments and their children. And I don't know. I I just I don't think I don't think politics should be the primary lens with which we look through that. Um, You know, human life is meaningful. um, And well, I don't think that puts an obligation on people to have children or not have children. I wouldn't, I, I just, there's something in, inside me, and maybe it is subrational or even wrong, but that rebels against the idea that the primary way we should think about the continuation of the human story and other people being able to have their own stories is through our understanding of the challenges of our time, given how little we know about the future. Anyway, um, thank you. To Vrishni Prakash for being here. I really love that conversation. I'm really um, inspired by what they're doing. Thank you to Cynthia Gill for engineering, to Jeffrey Gill for producing, to Rajesh Karma for researching. These are of Vox Media podcast production.